I want, I want, I want me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. Greetings and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 48 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to talk about the General Welfare Clause in the Constitution. So there are several clauses in the Constitution's proponents of governopoly used to justify sweeping federal powers. And one of the most abused of these clauses is the General Welfare Clause. Now, progressives love this one because it sounds so progressive. And really reading it at face value, it does seem to confer an awful lot of power on the federal government. Here's how the... uh, General Welfare Clause goes. It says, The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Now, when you really think about it, almost anything could be considered general welfare. And in the minds of a lot of Americans, it does. And so, therefore, under this clause, the federal government is supposed to be able to do well pretty much anything. Now, this actually reveals one of the problems of the textualist theory of constitutional interpretation, because you look at the the words general welfare, and you look at this clause, and you think, well, obviously, the founders, the drafters of the Constitution, the people that ratified it, they intended for the federal government to have this broad sweeping power to do all of the various things that uh, relate to the general welfare. But the truth of the matter is, we have to understand the context and, and the legal framework that the Constitution is written in in order to understand what the General Welfare Clause actually means. So that brings us back to the progressives. Now, this is an old piece. It was actually from back in 2011. Uh, it's a Huffington Post column by a guy named Paul Abrams. And he kind of demonstrates this line of thinking, this, this idea that the General Welfare Clause empowers the federal government to do anything and everything. He writes, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 grants the United States government the unqualified and unlimited power to raise and spend money, for example, to provide health care for the elderly or for everyone, provide old age pension, build roads, bridges, train tracks, airports, electric grids, libraries, swing pools, housing, educate our children, retrain the unemployed, provide preschool and daycare fund public health projects, invest in and conduct basic research, provide subsidies for agriculture, save the auto industry, create internets. He actually wrote internets. And yes, Tea Party Senator Mike Lee even provide emergency aid from natural disasters and so forth. 
all subsumed under the authority to spend for the general welfare. So, like I said, this seems reasonable on the surface, but when we understand that the framers were creating a limited federal government, and this is not arguable, and, and I've touched on this several other in several other podcasts, it raises a huge question. If the federal government can do anything to advance the general welfare, why in the world did the drafters of the Constitution bother to go on and list out specific powers? Yes, if you bother to read past that general welfare clause, you will find a list of specific powers that Congress has. Now, here's the question for you. If the guys writing the Constitution intended the federal government to be able to do anything and everything in order to advance the general welfare and general defense, why in the world did they take the time to then go on and list specific powers? Seems kind of redundant, doesn't it? I mean, after all, they're writing this thing with the feather. Seems like a waste of ink. And it would be a waste of ink. I mean, why list powers? If you've already said they can do anything and everything, then why list explicit powers? Well, this fact, the fact that there are enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, brings an important legal rule of construction into play. The enumeration of certain powers in the Constitution logically excludes all powers not listed. There's a Latin term for it, designato unius est exclusio alterius. And I apologize if I butchered that Latin because, well, I dropped Latin after about six weeks when I took it in college. So a Latin scholar I am not. But I do know that that is a legal maxim, and it means the designation of one is the exclusion of the other. So think of it this way. Let's say you and I are going to sit down and play a game of chess, and you don't really know the rules. And I'm explaining to you how the pieces move. And I tell you that the king may move one square in any direction. Now, if I tell you that, we don't need to spend the next three hours having me tell you every move that the king can't make. You know, I wouldn't have to tell you, well, he can't move two places, and he can't move three places, and he can't skip a square. No, when I tell you that he may move one square in any direction, that excludes any other imaginable thing that I didn't explicitly say was allowed. That's the way the Constitution works. James Madison made this very point in a letter to James Robertson. He said, with respect to the two words, general welfare, I have always regarded them as qualified by the detail of powers connected with them. To take them in a literal and unlimited sense would be a metamorphosis of the Constitution into a character which there is a host of proofs was not contemplated by its creators. So yes, promoting the general welfare falls among the responsibilities of the federal government, but it can only promote the general welfare within the scope of those powers that were specifically delegated in Article 1, Section 8, the list of powers. Now, during the ratification debates, anti-federalists who opposed the Constitution, they voiced fears that people like Abrams would come along and assert that this term general welfare granted unlimited power to the federal government. Supporters of the Constitution swore it wouldn't. Even Alexander Hamilton, and you know Alexander Hamilton loved him some federal power, even he said that this expansive power would not be allowed. He said this in Federalist 83, The specification of particulars, that means the enumeration of powers in Article 1, Section 8, 
evidently excludes all pretensions to a general legislative authority because an affirmative grant of special powers would be absurd as well as useless if a general authority was intended. So he's saying exactly what I said earlier. It's ridiculous to give a, a general grant of power and then go and make a list. Madison explicitly addressed these anti-federalist fears in Federalist 41. He wrote, For what purpose could the enumeration of particular powers be inserted if these and all others were meant to be included in the preceding general power? Nothing is more natural nor common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by a recital of particulars. But the idea of an enumeration of particulars which neither explain nor qualify the general meaning and can have no further effect than to confound and mislead is an absurdity. Madison gives us more insight into the general welfare clause in a letter he wrote to Edmund Pendleton back in 1793. And he points out that the phrase general welfare was lifted from the Articles of Confederation, and that it was intended to retain its meaning in the new Constitution. He wrote, if Congress can do whatever in their discretion can be done by money and will promote the general welfare, the government is no longer a limited one possessing enumerated powers, but an indefinite one subject to particular exceptions. It is to be remarked that the phrase out of which this doctrine is elaborated is copied from the old Articles of Confederation, where it was always understood as nothing more than a general caption to the specified powers, and it is a fact that it was preferred in the new instrument for that very reason as less liable than any other to misconstruction. So the words general welfare must mean something, right? It's not just a grant of power for the Congress to do whatever the heck it wants. So what does it mean? Well, the two words in the clause hold the key, general and common. The phrase simply means that any tax collected and any money spent must be for the benefit of the United States as a whole, not for a partial or sectional interest, or special interest as we would call them today. The federal government can promote the general welfare or common good, but it must do so within the scope of the powers delegated without favoritism. It's time to dispense with this absurd notion that the general welfare clause gives the federal government the power to do anything and everything it wants. That's simply not what it means. And as Madison said, it cre it's a metamorphosis of the Constitution into a character, which there is a host of proofs was not contemplated by its creators. The federal government was intended to be limited. We need to make sure it stays that way. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. We're another 10 minutes closer to freedom. I really appreciate you listening to the show. If you haven't done it, head to iTunes and subscribe for free. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, spread the word. And feel free to send me any thoughts or ideas at michael.meharry at 10thamendmentcenter.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.